The year was 1982, which means that the hair was big and the ballads were strong. And one of the hottest bands in the country at the time was Chicago. And they came out with this song entitled, Hard to Say I'm Sorry. Do you remember it? Uh, a few of the opening lyrics read like this. Everybody needs a little time away, I heard her say, from each other. Even lovers need a holiday far away from each other. Hold me now. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. I just want you to stay. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. And I think they're right. I was watching an episode of The Office the other night, and one of the characters in that show, Stanley, made a similar statement. He said this. He said, it's like I used to tell my wife, I do not apologize unless I think I'm wrong. And if you don't like it, you can leave. And I say the same thing to my current wife, and I'll say the same thing to my next wife, too. It's hard for me to say I'm sorry. And it is. And it is. Have you ever wrestled with that? You got into an argument with somebody and you knew you were wrong and it was just really difficult to say, I'm sorry? I mean, there's something in us, isn't there, when we have to admit that we were wrong? It, it makes us question our identity and our worth. If I was wrong then, does that mean that, that I'm wrong as a, as a person? Does it make me wrong? And see, instead of naming our wrong, it's easier to ignore it. Let's just not talk about that statement. And let's hope that enough time passes that we'll just be okay. Or we minimize it. That's not a big deal. Everybody does that. Everybody does that. Or we blame somebody else. It was their fault. It wasn't my fault. Or we can even just blame our nature. I was just born that way. And there's all of these ways that we try to distance ourselves from our wrong. Even within the church, we have a hard time talking about sin. We'll talk about messing up or slipping up or making a bad decision. Or even sort of in our moment right now and over the last few decades, we've equated sin and brokenness. And they're not the same thing. Certainly sin can lead to brokenness, but brokenness is something that God intends to heal. Sin is something that we need to repent and we need to turn from. But I think as an, as an evangelical, Bible-believing follower of Jesus, confession is difficult for another reason also. I think a lot of us, if we were honest, we would say, I don't exactly know what to do with confession. Like, I don't know where confession of my sin fits because I'm already forgiven by God. And that's true. I mean, the work that Jesus did on the cross, by faith in him, you are fully forgiven of all of your sin, past, present, and future. So you might ask, I think rightly, then where in the world does confession fit in the life of the believer? And like I said, I think it's a great question. So, so here's where confession fits in the life of the believer who's already forgiven. <laughs> confession is the practice, the discipline that allows us to take God's forgiveness from our head into our heart. It's the practice that allows us to experience 
experience God's forgiveness that is true of us already in Christ. In fact, I'd invite you to write it down like this. Confession allows us to experience God's forgiveness and it moves us toward wholeness. It moves us toward wholeness, towards healing, towards restoration. A few weeks ago, I had the chance to take my son, Ethan, out on the backpacking trail, and I love being in the outdoors. And one of the pieces of equipment that we brought was a water filter so that we could take water from a river and filter out all of the impurities that would make us sick and then drink fresh, purified water. In so many ways, the discipline and practice of confession does the exact same thing for believers. It's a purification of the sin that would so long to destroy our lives. But I think it's important that we address what confession isn't before we start to jump into nuancing what confession is in the life of the believer. So here's the reality, friends. For the Jesus follower... Confession is not something that we're called to do primarily because God needs it. It's actually because we need it and we flourish when we bring our sin into the light and experience God's forgiveness. Now, now, there is a confession of faith that allows us to step into the forgiveness that God has provided for us, Jesus has purchased for us on the cross, and have it credited to us as righteousness, according to the scriptures. In fact, John would write it this way to the churches in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He said this, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, but as followers of Jesus, we continue to confess after we are forgiven. And it takes on a different purpose. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But second, uh, uh, confession of sin initially is a crediting to us as righteousness. We step under Christ's righteousness, but it's not only that. It's not only or simply an accounting procedure where our sin is moved from our ledger to Christ's. It's, it's relational in nature. It's relational in nature. And I'd invite you to write this down also. Confession is a platform to be honest, and it's a pathway to come home. And in this way, it's this beautiful invitation from God to be honest about all of the darkness and sin within us and to bring it into the light, to know that we don't have to hide in order to be loved. That's what confession reminds us of. There's a, a platform to be honest and there's a pathway to come home. Every time we confess, we're reminded that our Father's arms are open wide, that He's running to us, that His grace is sufficient for us, and His love is over us regardless of where we've been. And it's that beautiful truth. This practice invites us to experience. Yeah, confession allows us to experience God's forgiveness and it moves us towards wholeness. And in this series that we've been doing entitled Raise Your Voice, we've been talking about all different forms of prayer and what it looks like to raise our voice to God. And today we're gonna raise our voice in confession. And a man after God's own heart, a man by the name of David, is going to be our guide. I'd invite you, turn with me to Psalm 51 as we explore this prayer 
of confession. So Psalm 51 is a psalm that was written by David at a, at a low point in his life. And it's one of the few psalms that we actually know exactly when it was written. Look at the prologue to it. It says this, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had um, slept with Bathsheba, who wasn't his wife. And if you're thinking, oh my goodness, there must be a story there. You have no idea. So let me give you the one minute version of what happened that spurred on the writing of Psalm 51. David was king over all of Israel. He saw Bathsheba, who was a very attractive woman, which is obvious with the name Bathsheba, bathing on the top of a building. He found her attractive, wanted to sleep with her. So he sent for her, brought her over, slept with her, got her pregnant. But her husband Uriah was out at war. So he brought Uriah back to have him sleep with his wife so that he would think he got her pregnant. But Uriah was a man of integrity and refused to be with his wife while his men were out at war. And so David then sent Uriah back onto the front lines of battle so that he would be killed. It was essentially a way of murdering the man whose wife he slept with and got pregnant. And so the prophet Nathan comes to David, the king, and confronts him about his sin. He finally sees it. You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And it's in light of that revelation that David writes Psalm 51. And let me read it in its entirety for us so that you can get the scope of what David is bringing before the Lord in confession. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from all my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Verse 13, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Verse 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, 
there's a lot of ways, directions we could go with this psalm. And we could do a whole series on confession. We only have a few minutes together today. So I'd actually want to point out five things that help us shape the prayer of confession. And here's the first thing that I want you to see. It's in verses, the second part of verse one and verse two. And it's David's recognition of his sin. I want you to write down that one word, recognition. Listen to the way that he puts it. He says, blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Uh, Transgressions, iniquity, sin. In many ways, we hear those and we hear sin each time, but David's giving a more nuanced explanation of what happens. That word transgression, it could be literally, it could literally mean choosing to intentionally disobey. It's an intentional saying, God, I don't really care what you think. I'm going to do my own thing. That word iniquity is a premeditated disobedience. So it's thinking it through and deciding to do it anyway. It's, it's first degree sin. And then sin, that word sin, simply means missing the mark. It's the mark that of what God has set, what God has designed, his law, his goodness, his shalom, missing the mark of why he designed us to carry his, his image in the world, to be image bearers of God. And so David is saying, listen, there's something going on inside of me, sin, iniquity, transgression, and he recognizes it and he names it. David is coming to terms with the reality of what he's done. He's owning up to where he's been and the actions that he has taken. And see, here's the thing that David starts to point out for us. Sin blinds us to the reality of what we've done and it often causes us to live in deception. And recognition is a huge part of confession. I think Eugene Peterson captured it well when he made this true but controversial statement. Listen to what he said. He said, in the Christian life, our primary task isn't to avoid sin which is impossible anyway, but to recognize it. And part of the power of sin in the life of of humanity, of, of people, even of followers of Jesus, is its deception. See, for David, David, when he sent for Bathsheba, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a lover. Uh, When he sent Uriah onto the battlefield, he didn't feel like a sinner. He felt like a king. And we're often too close to our own sin to even recognize it, which is why this part of the process is so important. Growth only happens in our life when we face reality, not as we suppress truth. And here's the thing. God longs to reveal to us our sin so that he can lead us to his grace. However, the inward journey for David doesn't end with recognition. It also, it also demands that we take responsibility. I'd invite you to write that down. Recognition, responsibility. And notice the way that David says this is in verses one and two also. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. And David is taking personal responsibility and ownership for what he's, where he's been. He says the same thing in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. His confession is personal. It's me. It's direct. 
this is what I've done. It's specific. It's immediate. It's without denial. And it is without excuse. Here's the thing that David doesn't do. David doesn't say, well, it's Bathsheba's fault. I mean, I mean, who bathes naked on the top of their roof anyway, right? He doesn't try to blame shift. He knows that the responsibility of his actions falls squarely on his shoulders. And here's the thing, you guys, here's the thing. I, I just, we need to get this today is unless we take responsibility for our sin, we will never be freed from it. Listen to the language that David uses. It's how we know he really gets it. Here's what he says. Against you, verse 4, and you only have I sinned. David isn't saying here that there's no wrong done to Bathsheba or to Uriah. He's saying, God, it's your law that I broke and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, part of David's recognition and responsibility is saying, God, you're right in judging me. You're right in saying that I was wrong because I am wrong. I did wrong. I think it's one of the ways we know if we're taking responsibility for our sin. We are willing to admit that what we have done deserves God's judgment. It deserves God's judgment. David doesn't try to reason his way out of it. He positions himself to receive it. And if you've ever heard somebody apologize and say something like, well, I'm really sorry that you took that comment that way, you know what it feels like to be on the other end of somebody who's unwilling to accept responsibility. It's somebody else's fault. David doesn't do that. And if we're going to confess in a way that leads to freedom and wholeness and healing, we have to accept responsibility too. So here's what David's taught us so far. We can't live in deception and confession. We have to recognize. And we can't blame and confess. We have to take responsibility. But the next thing that he shows us in this beautiful Psalm, Psalm 51, is seen in verse 17. And listen to what he says. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So we recognize, we take responsibility, and then we have to have some expression of remorse. And I would invite you to write that down, remorse. David uses the word here that we translate contrite. It literally means crushed. He um, makes that emphatic by saying broken, like his heart is grieving over the decisions that he has made. I mean, I'm sure you hear people say things like, oh, I don't regret anything. It's made me who I am today. But confession doesn't let us off that easy. Confession demands that there's remorse, that there is a, a godly regret that would lead to life, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And there are two levels of remorse that David is undoubtedly feeling. Here's the first. The first is, is personal 
The first is for him. Um, He says this in verse eight, let me hear joy and gladness. So he's going, my sin has broken me and it has sapped my joy. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So there's this picture. I think David is being a little bit more literal than even figurative here. He's saying, my sin and the weightiness and grief over my sin is affecting me physically. The bones that you have broken. Have you ever experienced that? Where you're just so grieved over your sin? I, I mean, that it made maybe even your stomach turn a little bit. You looked at something online that you know you shouldn't have looked at. You made a bad business deal. You told a lie that snowballed into another lie, into another lie, into another lie. And eventually you're in a position that you never thought you'd be in. You made a comment to somebody you love that fractured a relationship and your bones felt broken. David says the same thing in Psalm 32, verse three. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Yeah, sin affects us holistically, holistically. Another thing David says in this like personal way that sin affects him, he says, created me a clean heart, O God, verse 10, and renew a right spirit within me. I think what David's saying when he says that is he's saying there were and are consequences to my sin. And one of those is that it drives a wedge between me and God. Uh, Create a, a new spirit, renew a right spirit within me. And see, the more affection we have for God, the more broken we will be over our sin because we'll realize that it's our sin that drives a wedge between us and God. It's the reason that David will go on to say in verse 11, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He's identifying that sin is a thief and sin is a robber. It robs us of the life that God designed us to live and connection to the author of life and flourishing that he longs for us to have. So there's this personal remorse over sin. But then for David, there's also a communal remorse. There's a way that David's sin affects all of the people around him. And the same is true for you and I too. For David, you can read about this in 2 Samuel, it meant that his son that he conceived with Bathsheba would die. It meant that his sons would look on, his other sons would look on and see the way that his dad operated and in many ways follow suit, sort of this generational sin type of an idea. And certainly God would uh, forgive all of his sin. David will make that absolutely 100% clear. He is free from condemnation, but that doesn't mean that he's free from every consequence of sin. And so for David, there's this honest remorse. I mean, that can be a bitter pill to swallow. The pain of remorse is one of the reasons we're more comfortable calling sin brokenness or a mistake or a slip up. But friends, coming to terms with the way that our actions have dramatically and in devastating ways affected us 
and those around us is a part of the process and practice of confession that eventually leads to our wholeness. It's the reason that Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The second thing, though, that David says, or that in line with this, so we have recognition, responsibility, remorse, and then on the heels of that is repentance. R- repentance is simply a change of mind, a change of thinking, that leads to a change in action. I'm reminded of a story I heard a while back, a joke, and uh, it was about this man who had uh, had a guilty conscience because he hadn't been paying his taxes in the way that he should have been. And he did this. He said, uh, he wrote a letter to the IRS saying, I haven't been able to sleep because last year when I filed out my tax return, I misrepresented my income. Enclosed is $500. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> that's awesome. I think that's the way that many of us look at sin and repentance. I'll do just enough to get to where we're okay, but I won't fully turn. I won't fully change my mind. But David points out that there's a complete turning that's necessary within confession. He says it in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. It's a, a, a reunification of uh, people with their heavenly Father. See, David lived under the assumption that he was king, and he could do as he pleased. But his repentance makes it clear that he no longer believes that. He's returning to God. And this, friends, this is the invitation that Jesus gave us. When he came onto the scene, one of his main messages was, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Listen to the way that Mark recorded it. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So this is the gospel. The time is fulfilled, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. See, far from being a a sign that angry people hold at sporting events, back when we had those, right? Repent! Turn! Repentance was this beautiful word that Jesus talked about. It's this idea of, of it's possible to turn, to rethink the way that you're thinking, to rethink the way you think about your anger, about lust, about telling lies, about the people that you care about, the people that you love. He goes, you can rethink that and enter the kingdom of God. But you cannot enter the kingdom of God if you want to hold on to your sin. It's the reason that Martin Luther, in the first of the 95 theses that he posted on the Wittenberg door, the first one was this. He said, Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Repentance. This isn't to make God happy. This isn't to get back in his good graces. This is to say back to God, God, I want to live in relationship with you. I want to live with you as Lord. So I'm going to turn from those other things that I've been holding on to, and I'm going to walk with you into your kingdom. I love the way that Tim Keller put it. He said this, In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. 
so good, yes, yes. So we recognize, we take responsibility, we have remorse, and then we repent, we turn, and we walk into the beauty of healing and wholeness that Jesus designed us to live in. So David is teaching us, friends, that confession isn't easy, but it's powerful. It's not, it's not bitter. It's actually beautiful. Because as we confess, God does a work in our heart, in our life, to move us towards wholeness. Remember, that's what we said this practice is really all about. And David shows us that clearly. Listen to the way that he says this a few different times in this psalm. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore, restore. Literally in the Hebrew, bring me back, bring me back. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, what you've done in my life to, to heal me and to make me whole and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, we have, we recognize our sin. We take responsibility for it. We offer remorse. We repent of it. And then finally, what David's showing us is that God brings about restoration. That's the fifth thing. As we look at the shape of confession, as we pray, God, we want to raise our voice to you. You know, I get this picture of um, all the fires that are going on in Colorado and California right now, and they're leaving behind them a scorched earth. Uh, Sin does the exact same thing to our soul. It needs restoration. It needs God to come and plant seeds of life and health and healing back inside of it. That word restore is the word shub. And, And that's exactly what we need Jesus to do in our hearts and our lives. And it's exactly what confession sets the table for. Listen to the way that James wrote it to the churches when he wrote it in this, in verse, chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it's working. That the energy of God inhabits the practice of confession to bring us toward wholeness. Confession leads towards healing. And what we conceal, God will not heal. But what we reveal, God will restore. I love the way that David continues to unpack this in the psalm as he even begins with this declaration. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your mercy, your love and your mercy. Set the stage for restoration. This word love is the word chesed in the Hebrew. It's sometimes translated loving kindness or covenantal faithfulness. I think it's one of my favorite words in the entire Bible. See, because David, as he begins to confess his sin, he does it because he remembers first and foremost God's love and God's mercy towards him. David calls on God's love in the midst of his sin. See, God doesn't want to see us destroyed by our sin. He wants to restore us. He wants to heal us. And he wants to bring us towards wholeness. David knows that his sin does not stop God's ferocious, passionate love for him. 
See, but the second thing that David shows us about restoration is that he has this conviction, not only that God loves him, but that God can and will cleanse him. Verse six, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The the idea of hyssop comes from Exodus chapter 12, verse 22. And it says this, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood in that, in, that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. The hyssop was what they used to apply the Passover lamb's blood to the doorpost when the nation of Israel was being freed from slavery in Egypt. Yeah, yeah. hyssop was a, a picture of, of blood, of the application of blood. And it's this foreshadowing both in Psalm 51 and Exodus 12 of what Jesus would eventually do for his followers, that we would be freed by his blood, that as John would point at Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we know that by his stripes we have been healed. We have been restored. It's so interesting. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the prophet Nathan looks at David and says, David, you are the man. You're the man I'm talking about in this story, calling him out on this, his sin. But in John chapter 19, verse 5, Pilate looks at Jesus and says, behold, the man. He is the man. He's the man that puts an end to all of our sin. He's the man that takes our sin, our shame, our guilt on his shoulders, and he buries them in the ground, comes out holding new life in his hands, declaring, it is finished. And every time we confess, friends, we know that God brings about restoration because of the resurrection. And finally, I just, we need to catch this today in this Psalm. David writes this, for you don't delight in sacrifice or I give it. You won't be pleased with burnt offerings. See, see, David's saying that confession and forgiveness don't happen because of religious rites or rituals. They happen through relationship. Forgiveness is received. It's not earned. And this is so important because what God's interested in is our heart. That's what David said. A contrite and a broken heart you will not despise. Here's the thing. We cannot go through the motions of confession and expect to be restored. True confession demands honest, honest laying of our heart before God saying, God, shine on me. See, at the beginning of this series, I I invited you to pray with me for revival. Revival in our own hearts, in our church, in our community, in our nation, in our world. But if you read and study any of the significant revivals that have happened throughout history, they all begin with prayer and with confession. Revival begins in us before it flows out from us. And so I would just invite you to come before God in honesty and to confess. If you've grown cold, confess that. If there's a sin that you're hiding or concealing, confess that. 
confess the ways that we haven't lived in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus, that we haven't embraced his kingdom. Confess that. Because David ends with where I want us to end today as well. Listen to verse 14. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and I will declare your praise. See, the new song of the forgiven soul is an evangelistic hymn of praise to God. We recognize that we receive something we haven't deserved and that we are made whole. God takes our fragmented, fractured parts because of sin and he begins to weave them back together. See, the cry, forgive me, always ends in a declaration, thank you. And I would invite you to write this down. When sin is honestly confessed, grace can be fully celebrated. When sin is honestly confessed, grace can be fully celebrated because confession begins the process of restoration, of wholeness and healing. Friends, don't hide what God wants to heal. I want to call on you to believe that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. To be willing to say those words that are really hard to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And to receive the forgiveness that God longs for us to walk in. Remember, confession is a practice that allows us to experience the reality of forgiveness and then walk in wholeness. And so we recognize, we take responsibility, we experience remorse, we choose repentance, and then we get to live in restoration. I pray that you and I would become people of honest confession, that we might know true healing. You know, as we close our time together today, I just want to invite you wherever you're at, if you're in your living room or at a desk or in a coffee shop, would you just pause and ask the Spirit to stir up in you things that He wants you to bring before Him, to confess, to say, God, shine a light in this darkness and this sin. These actions that I've taken, they weren't just a mistake. They weren't a slip up or a mess up. They were sin. And I need to name it and own it and bring it before you. And maybe, maybe you pray David's dangerous prayer. Search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any way grievous within me and then lead me in the way everlasting. Forgive me, forgive me. So Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, you've given your life for us. You've shed your blood so that we would know that we're forgiven. And Lord, we don't just want to know it in our heads. We want to experience it in our hearts. And we want to walk in the restoration, the wholeness, and the healing that you have purchased for us on Calvary's Hill. So we want to bring the things to you, the dark pieces of our soul, the secrets that we'd rather hide. And we want to name them and lay them out before you. We want to see the way that they fractured 
the kind of shalom and life that you've designed us to live. We wanna turn and then we wanna experience the life that you promise to give. We bring all of this before you in the powerful name of Jesus and all of God's people together said,